Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to the challenge of fentanyl, the China-Mexico connection. Please welcome our host, Paul Larkin, Rumpel Senior Legal Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon, all, and welcome to today's Heritage event. My name is Paul J. Larkin, Jr., and as Catherine told you, I am a fellow at the Mies Center at Heritage. I have the distinct privilege of being your host for today's event. Before I say anything else, I wanna thank you for tuning in to this event. You each have numerous options in how you wanna spend your time, and we all appreciate that you are spending some of the time with us today to learn about a very important topic, the infiltration into our society of illicit fentanyl and the dangers that that has caused for our own people. We should celebrate the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic is starting to come to an end. Unfortunately, an epidemic of drug overdoses was pushed to the side largely during the COVID pandemic and has not disappeared. It has come back. In fact, only yesterday, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention noted an enormous increase in the number of overdose deaths due to all drugs, to opioids, and in particular to fentanyl. Fentanyl is now the third stage of what is a three-wave opioid epidemic. The first wave was the overuse and misuse of prescription opioids. The second wave was a turn to heroin as prescription opioids became more difficult to obtain. The third stage is now reliance on what are called novel psychoactive substances, including synthetic opioids like fentanyl. The number of deaths that are attributable to the opioid overdose epidemic rivals the number at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. In 2018, there were roughly 50,000 opioid involved overdose fatalities. We have now exceeded that number, both in 2019 and 2020 for drug use. There are different synthetic opioids, but the one that is predominantly the problem today is fentanyl or one of its analogs. In fact, currently no other drug kills or has ever killed on a scale that fentanyl does. Its use has been on the rise for more than a decade, but it has increased far recently, principally due to a variety of different factors. Fentanyl, ironically, is not a new product. It's been around for more than 60 years. It is also less expensive to manufacture than heroin and far more potent. The likely reasons for the spike in fentanyl use and overdoses are probably threefold. One, greater ease of manufacturing fentanyl because it is entirely synthetic than it is of manufacturing heroin out of opium. Second, there is ample sourcing for the precursor chemicals and for the finished product of fentanyl itself. China is the ultimate source of most 
finished fentanyl, although China is also in the process of sending precursor chemicals to Mexico, where the drug cartels are manufacturing the finished product themselves. In fact, China will ship the finished product to the United States, either in the mail or private couriers, or by cargo ships to Mexico. And it will also ship the precursor chemicals to Mexico, where we have some considerable entrepreneurial skills shown, unfortunately, by the drug cartels in manufacturing fentanyl at massive laboratories. Finally, China will also send fentanyl to the United States via Canada for distribution there and smuggling or further distribution into the United States. Another reason perhaps for the recent rise in fentanyl is the combination of three different technological advancements. The internet makes international communications easier. Encryption helps keep them secret. And various types of cyber currency, such as Bitcoin, make it difficult to trace these transactions. Together, those developments have allowed for greater ease of communication and trade for fentanyl suppliers. We have three experts in this problem today who are going to talk to you about the China-Mexico connection and offers the uh, opportunity to hear some different ways of dealing with it. I now have the privilege of introducing our speakers. Our first speaker will be the Honorable James Carroll Jr. He served as Director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy in the Trump administration. James had previously served in a variety of posts in the George W. Bush administration, including Deputy General Counsel at the Department of Treasury. He holds a BA from the University of Virginia and a JD from the Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Following him is former acting administrator of the Drug Enforcement Administration, Utam Dillon. Utam also served as the 15th Director of Interpol Washington, the U.S. Nas National Central Bureau, until January 1921. He is a principal and co-founder of DC Consulting LLC, along with Jim Carroll, a management consulting firm specializing in drug-related and law enforcement issues. He is also a member of the board of directors of Opioid Clinical Management Inc. and Dispose RX Inc., two companies dedicated to reducing drug addiction and drug overdose deaths. Our third speaker will be Mark Brinovich, who currently serves as Arizona's 26th Attorney General. He assumed office in 2015 and reassumed it in 2019 after re-winning the election. He spent most of his professional life serving as a prosecutor for state, local, or federal governments. He worked in the gang repeat offender unit from 1992 to 1993 and then became an assistant attorney general with the Arizona AG's office from 1998 to 2003. He later became an assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Arizona, where he prosecuted public integrity offenses and crimes occurring in Indian country. Today's program will proceed as follows. Each panelist will make some opening remarks in the order I mentioned. Next will come a moderated discussion involving all three panelists. We will conclude with audience questions. If you are watching and have a question, please submit it in the question box found in your toolbar on the right-hand side. We hope that you will find today's presentations productive and instructive. And we'll now hear 
from former ONDCP director Jim Carroll. Jim, the floor is yours. Thank you, Paul. And thank you to Heritage for sponsoring this important and very timely event. To the group at Heritage and to the group that are listening, this is a most critical time. The Center for Disease Control announced yesterday that deaths from overdose have now reached a reported 93,000. What we know is that number is even higher. But if we stick with that 93,000, we need to be able to put that in perspective. In Korea, the entire battle war of Korea, we lost 36,000. In the Vietnam War, it was almost 60,000. It was about 58,000 folks who lost their lives. Those two wars combined are the exact same number of deaths that we experienced in one year with COVID, with fatal overdoses, with the drugs that are coming into our country. Because we need to admit and recognize that all of the drugs that are killing Americans, almost all, 99% are coming in from outside the United States the impact that it is having by allowing these drugs to reach our borders and penetrate in are killing Americans. When you look back at COVID-19 and in the last 15 months, we can add the Revolutionary War to the death total. We're seeing essentially about 260 Americans dying every day from a drug overdose right now. During the course of this hour-long discussion, we're going to lose more Americans. We'll lose 10 to 12 Americans from an overdose from drugs that are being brought into our country just while we're talking. We're obviously going to hear about what's happening at the state level from General Brnovich, but we'll also be able to give some of the national as well as international perspective of what's happening. What we know is that we have to fundamentally change what we're doing and how we're approaching this. When I was the director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy, I oversaw the $35 billion that the federal government spent. It was more money than was ever spent before. And we focused on three main topics. And they're actually in line with a, and it took me a while to figure this out, with a church group um, that is affiliated with the Basilica where I go, and there's a side chapel. On the wall, and I used to stare at this quite a bit, and it finally hit me. I, I used to be a lawyer, as, as Paul and, and my friends here know, um, and so it took me a while to sort of catch on being a lawyer. But the three, there were three sentences on the wall in the side chapel that were directly related to how we were looking at this issue. The first was, do not be afraid. And for those people that are struggling with an addiction here in the U.S., that's our message to them is don't be afraid. We will embrace you. We will lead you to treatment. We will take you there. We will support you. We will get you out on your feet. We will get you started again in living a life of prosperity and long-term recovery. That's what they're looking for. The second line was, I am here to enlighten. And that's a key message for prevention, which was the second leg of the three-legged stool of enlightening our youth about the dangers of drug use, the dangers of what's out there, because this is not what is out there. When Udom and I were growing up, um, and what many people here in the audience were experiencing when they were growing up, 
So it's important to work, and I, I'm proud to partner with SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions, the premier national organization, to teach prevention to our youth. And starting in high school is way too late. We start um, in elementary school. But really, the third line of what is written on the chapel is something that we need to change our view on. The third line states, live with a penitent heart. It is time for those drug dealers, time for those drug traffickers who are bringing these fatal drugs into our country to repent. They need to change what they're doing or with the entire force of the United States, we need to change it for them. We need to change their comfort zone, make them feel like they are under pressure not to do this. And right now that's not happening. And we see that with the 260 folks that are dying every day what more will it take for us to say enough is enough? God bless the men and women of our national, state, local, and tribal law enforcement. We need to defend law enforcement. We need to make sure that they get the support, both the financial as well as the emotional support from American citizens. Not only are they the ones out there going after the true drug dealers, and I'll mention that in a second, they're also usually the first ones on the scene of an overdose. They're the ones carrying with them the life-saving reversal drugs, such as naloxone. They're also coming with the experience and expertise to keep their heart beating, to keep them alive until paramedics can get there. We defend law enforcement in this country because they are going after the traffickers. And that's who we need to target. We're not talking about someone who is sharing some pills with someone else who is um, also addicted. What we're talking about today are the cartels whose only addiction is to greed. They only care about their back pocket, and that's what they're willing to go after and defend. What we're now seeing abroad in China and Mexico, as we're talking about today, is the ability of some of these cartels to move seamlessly. They can move within their country, and they can move their drugs into our country. Mexico has changed. China has changed. What we need to do is now change and respond to the threats from those countries. It's time for us as Americans to recognize that the way that we're going after this, with 260 dying, every single day needs to change. We need to make sure that those who are purveyors of death in our country feel the impact of law enforcement and, I would argue, the U.S. military. So thank you all very much. I look forward to today's debate, um, conversation, and hearing from the audience about the questions and about what's happening out there. Paul, thank you very much for this opportunity. Lou Tom, the floor is now yours. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here today to talk about this very important issue, uh, an issue I hope that we'll be getting more, much more attention in the future. We're now in the third wave of the opioid crisis in this country. The first wave began with prescription opioids, which then led to heroin as a cheaper, more powerful alternative to prescription opioids. This second wave uh, lasted from 2008 to 2013, and drug cartels were flooding the U.S. with cheap heroin, 
which resulted in uh, heroin seizures increasing along the southwest border and heroin overdose deaths rising dramatically in the U.S. Then beginning in roughly 2018, uh, the United States entered the third wave of the opioid crisis, and that is the wave that we are in now. Um, this was the entry of deadly synthetic opioids into the United States, fentanyl. Fentanyl rapidly expanded across the country and in many areas has begun to supplant the heroin market. This shift was driven largely by foreign sources and simple economics. Synthetic opioids such as fentanyl are easy to produce, easy to conceal, and more lucrative than other drugs. Unlike other illicit uh, drugs such as cocaine, heroin, and marijuana, traffickers don't have to control large areas to grow coca, opium, or marijuana plants, nor are they subject to natural forces like drought or blight. The barriers for entry into the synthetic drug markets are relatively low. All you need is a basic understanding of chemistry, access to the right chemicals, and a distribution network. The Mexican cartels have all of these things, and their pivot into synthetic opioids was as deadly as it was swift. As of April 2021, U.S. law enforcement seized 6,494 pounds of fentanyl, already 1,700 pounds more than all of 2020. So let me say that again. In just six months, U.S. law enforcement seized more fentanyl than in all of 2020. While increased seizures are good, they're often a sign of increased supply. And as COVID restrictions ease, we're likely to see a continued surge of illicit fentanyl entering the United States. Behind all of this are Mexican drug trafficking organizations, Mexican drug cartels, which in my view represent the greatest threat, the greatest long-term threat to the U.S. public health and national security. These organizations, most notably the Sinaloa cartel and the uh, Jalisco New Generation cartel, more commonly known as CJNG, are large, well-funded, and exceedingly violent. They operate with relative impunity in Mexico and are responsible for tens of thousands of murders and disappearances in that country. These same organizations are flooding our communities with fentanyl, methamphetamine, cocaine, and heroin, and show no sign of abating. Unfortunately, the relationship between the U.S. and Mexican law enforcement is tenuous. Following the arrest and subsequent release last year of Salvador Cienfuegos, the former Mexican Minister of Defense. Last fall, the U.S. arrested Cienfuegos on drug charges based upon a federal indictment issued out of New York. According to the Wall Street Journal, Mexico was unaware of the probe and threatened to curb security cooperation with the U.S. and demanded the former defense minister be returned to Mexico. The Department of Justice complied, returning the former defense minister and providing Mexico with evidence supporting the New York indictment. Unfortunately, Mexico concluded that the evidence was not sufficient to arrest the former defense minister, much less convict him under Mexican law. The Mexican president then publicly accused DEA of fabricating the charges. A Justice Department, the Justice Department defended the indictment, saying, quote, a U.S. federal grand jury analyzed the, that material and other evidence and concluded that criminal charges were supported by the evidence, close quote. And the Wall Street Journal concluded, quote, the Justice Department's response might mark the lowest point in bilateral cooperation against criminal organizations since the abduction and killing of the DEA agent Kiki Camarena in 1985, close quote. 
In an apparent response to the U.S. indictment, the Mexican legislature passed strict regulations curtailing foreign law enforcement, that is, U.S. law enforcement, in Mexico by essentially requiring them to tell Mexican authorities everything they learned and were doing. Given the massive corruption in Mexico, these regulations make it impossible for U.S. law enforcement to operate in Mexico because they would effectively be telling the drug traffickers everything they know. This severely curtails our ability to fight transnational organized crime in Mexico. And the result of all of this, as I see it, is that Mexican drug trafficking organizations are growing stronger and will continue to grow stronger into the foreseeable future. And we can expect to see a significant increase of drugs entering our country, poisoning our communities and neighborhoods, and killing more and more of our fellow citizens. Given all of this, I'm going to make three policy, uh, or I'm going to I'd like to make three recommendations that policymakers should consider to increase our odds in the fight against these transnational criminal organizations. First and foremost, none of this will surprise anyone given my background, increase federal drug law enforcement. Drug trafficking is, a global, is global and sophisticated, and we need law enforcement to have the tools and resources to effectively attack it. Because supply matters, interdiction remains a critical element of this mission. And I can tell you from my experience at DEA, the more resources federal law enforcement has, the more drugs that will be interdicted and the more lives that will be saved. Also, Interpol Washington, which I most recently led as its director, has a critically important mission, interfacing and exchanging information with law enforcement in 193 other countries throughout the world. But Interpol Washington is woefully underfunded and understaffed. It needs more resources, lots more resources, to ensure that it can be a central player in the fight against transnational organized crime. My second recommendation is to consider designating Mexican drug cartels as foreign terrorist organizations. Now, let me be frank with you. When I was leading DEA, I was totally against this. Uh, at the time, our cooperation with Mexico was actually improving. I was assigning more DEA resources to Mexico, and I believe that if cooperation with Mexico continued to improve, we had sufficient law enforcement tools and resources to effectively fight the drug cartels. But that is not the case today. The deteriorating cooperation with law enforcement in Mexico and the inability of U.S. law enforcement to work effectively in Mexico gives us no choice but to seriously consider other options. If the United States were to designate drug cartels as terrorist organizations, then federal prosecutors could use additional statutes targeting terrorist activity against cartel members, which would grow the number of potential criminal targets to include cartel members and associates abroad and expose them to even higher criminal penalties. It would allow federal prosecutors to bring cases against foreign nationals acting only in a foreign country with little connection to the U.S. The one thing that drug traffickers fear the most is the U.S. justice system. They know they can't bribe or threaten their way to freedom once they're in U.S. custody. Quite simply, designating drug trafficking organizations as terrorist organizations would expand our reach, which is critical if the countries harboring these transnational criminal organizations can't or won't dismantle them. And third, consider, my third recommendation would be consider designating fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. 
In April 2019, a military news publication reported that the Departments of Defense and Homeland Security were considering designating fentanyl as a WMD. Fentanyl now causes at least 145 uh, deaths per day in the United States. A WMD designation would allow other federal government agencies to use national security resources to attack the fentanyl problem. This would allow a true whole of government approach that could result in building technology that could detect fentanyl, for example, and prevent terrorists from using fentanyl as a weapon. Mexican drug cartels are a continuing and growing global threat, requiring more resources, new approaches, and cooperation and coordination between governments throughout the world in order to successfully disrupt, dismantle, and ultimately destroy these deadly global criminal organizations. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you here today, and I look forward to answering your questions. General Brinovich, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody uh, for uh, watching, listening to us today. And I especially wanna thank all my friends at the Heritage Foundation for inviting me and allowing me to participate in such an important conversation. Um, I think we all recognize that we as a society, one of the greatest things we need to do is to protect the least vulnerable and protect our kids. And as the speakers before me mentioned, uh, let's make no mistake about it. This, this is a war and we have cartels and foreign countries literally trying to undermine America and undermine our quality of life. And that's why I think it's important as a state attorney general for me, my colleagues to do everything we can to protect our country. Because I think that if anyone listening or watching this today should recognize that one of the most important things about this conversation is that fentanyl, drugs, are not something confined to the Southwest border. This is not something that just affects Arizona. This affects the entire country from Maricopa to Montgomery, from Long Beach to Long Island. Um, I think we all know someone, family, friends, someone out there that's been affected by this scourge. And I think it's important that we use every tool in our toolbox. So let me just kind of highlight a few things that I've done that we are doing at the Attorney General's office here to make sure we're addressing this problem. First and foremost, I think we need to have conversations. And I'm not talking about the conversations we're having today. I mean, these are very important intellectual conversations and identifying the problem, it's so important. But I'm talking about the conversations our office does through community outreach, letting kids, letting folks in you know, middle school and high school know about the dangers of drugs and the destructiveness that can occur from what you may think is some innocent parting, um, but ultimately leads to destruction. And that destruction, also enriches and empowers the cartels. And so let's make no mistake about it, China and Mexican drug cartels are making money off the misery of the American people. And that's why I think it, it all starts with trying to work on prevention and letting folks know about what they should and be doing when it comes to drugs. A second corollary to that is what are we doing in law enforcement? And I know our office, we've seen an increase in the successful prosecutions relating to you know drug trafficking, and also folks that are involved in the sale of illicit drugs. And so we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to identify and punish those people that are involved in polluting and poisoning our neighborhoods. And I know that some of the previous speakers 
alluded to the extent or mentioned the extent of this problem. But I just want to just talk, highlight on just a couple things here. Once again, you know, sometimes we hear these numbers, you know, it's tough to you know, kind of wrap our minds around it. But in from 2013 to 2019, and I know the numbers just came out from 2020, but just highlighting 2013 to 2019, uh, we know that for um, synthetic opioid deaths um, for all synthetic opioids increased by more than a thousand percent in the United States. We know that in places like Maricopa County and Pima County, that just for fentanyl related overdose deaths, there was nearly 600. And so we, we've seen this devastating impact on human lives, the human tolls, and you can't help but ask yourself, well, what would that have high school student done if they had been allowed to continue on to college and do something? What would have happened to that mom, single mom that was maybe working a job trying to better her life and you know go to medical school and maybe find a cure for cancer. So there's this huge human toll and there's also other tolls on an economic level. And so it's not only just about addressing the problem through community outreach, it's not only addressing the problem through law enforcement, but one of the most important things I think that a state attorney general can do right now is to push back against the Biden administration and its failure to control our southern border. Because here's the reality. Just this year, it's projected that more than 2 million people, 2 million people will illegally cross our southern border. That's like the entire population of Nebraska coming across in just one year. And we all know, everyone in law enforcement knows that every time someone, either whether it's an individual or whether it's drug, com drugs coming across our border, that the cartels are enriching themselves. They are making themselves more and more powerful and more and more influential, not just in Mexico, but um, you know, even extending their tentacles here into the United States. And so we actually have right now three active lawsuits against the Biden administration, because I'm trying to do everything I can to keep our community safe. And so the first lawsuit we had, and the first lawsuit we have right now that's ongoing, involves the Biden administration, quote unquote, interim guidance policy. This was the policy where the Biden administration basically said they were gonna have a pause on deportations. Now, first it was gonna be 100 days and there was a lawsuit brought on that. And then they changed it to the quote unquote interim guidance. But we know that they are failing to deport individuals that have deportation orders. Title VIII US code clearly states that if someone has a deportation order, they shall be deported. Now, we actually argued this case recently in federal district court. The federal district judge said that Arizona had standing and that there were harms to the state as a result of the Biden policies, not just the state, other states. Um, but she felt that uh, the statute didn't, uh, she didn't have the authority under the statute to order or compel them to follow federal law. Now we think the federal judge is wrong. We've appealed that case. There's an appeal pending at the Ninth Circuit uh, because we think when the US code says shall, it means shall. And don't just take my word for it. I just argued a case successfully, Brnovich v. DNC at the US Supreme Court. And this may be another one because the federal statute says shall, and we just saw a case at the end of this term, Guzman, that said shall means shall. So um, we're very confident as that case moves forward, we're gonna win it. But maybe more importantly, once again, we have to put this in context. There are 1.2 million people right now in the United States with deportation orders. As a result of the Biden administration's failure to follow existing federal law, there are literally uh, individuals being released from short-term custody, federal detention, being released from Arizona prisons that, are, that have been uh, charged and convicted of very serious crimes, arson, rape, uh, manslaughter, all these serious crimes. And ICE isn't picking them up because of the Biden guidance policy. 
And so that is a danger and a threat every single person in America. And these are problems that aren't going to just stay in Arizona or Texas along the border. Um, these criminals are coming to everyone's neighborhood. Uh, you know, it's a sad state of affairs that the Democratic Party um, has moved from the 1960s, where President Kennedy pledged to put a man on the moon. And now, as a result of Joe Biden's policies, the Democrats are literally putting felons in everyone's neighborhood. And I think that should break everyone's heart, whether they're a Democrat or Republican, to see what's happening in our country. Two other lawsuits I want to highlight really quick is another lawsuit we filed involves um, uh, the National Environmental Protection Act. Now, this is the left for years has used NEPA to uh, stop any sort of development because they say that anytime the government undertakes action, if it has any sort of significant impact on the environment, good, bad, and different, they've got to study it before they can do it. Well, we know the border wall was being constructed. We know it was working. And Joe Biden on day one halted construction of the border wall and he rescinded the Remain in Mexico policy. We argue in our, in our lawsuit that as a result of that, the pause, the halting of that construction of the border wall, that has led to more people being able to cross the southern border, our southern desert. And as a result of that, it is having a significant impact on the environment. Now, I mentioned earlier that there's about 2 million people expected to cross the southern border just this year. The average person crossing the border leaves about six to eight pounds of trash. So literally, you're talking about millions of pounds of trash, and not only the foot traffic, that's having an impact on the environment. And whether that's habitat trails, whether that's an increase in potential forest fires or having fuel for uh, fires uh, damaging the environment, it, it obviously is having an impact. And regardless of what one thinks about the way the left has used these lawsuits, what, what is good for the goose is good for the gander. And so we are arguing that as a result of those Biden policies on pausing the wall, they are allowing the environment to be significantly impacted by all these people uh, increasing the border. So we want the judge to order the Biden administration to continue building the border wall so we can not only secure our border, but we can protect our environment. And the last lawsuit we're involved in, me and some of my colleagues, where we've tried to intervene in the public charge rule. Now this is the common sense statute that's been on the US books for nearly 100 years that basically says that if you are gonna come into the United States, you want citizenship, you want a green card, you have to be able to support yourself. Um, there was a, uh, a rule that was implemented by the Trump administration that basically said, you've got to be able, you can't be on public benefits for the 12 months of the 36 months if you want to be eligible for that citizenship green card process. There was literally a case pending at the US Supreme Court in a very unusual move. The Biden administration dropped that appeal and they've essentially um, you know, rescinded those provisions. And so we want to go in there and be able to defend that because we think that anytime that you decriminalize what the Biden administration is doing with the uh, interim guidance and you essentially incentivize by now you know, giving people benefits um, to come over here, you create a situation where you, if you incentivize and decriminalize, you will get more of an activity. And that's essentially what we're seeing on our southern border. And as I said, the reason why the southern border matters is because I know from my personal experience being down on the southern border and even close to the border, you know, in places like Pinal County, that, um, you know, these, the, the traffickers are taking advantage of the situation. And I've seen it firsthand or sometimes you'll group of, get a group of 60, 80, 100 migrants that literally would go and they'll surrender to, you know, Border Patrol. Border Patrol has to apprehend them. They have to process them. They have to get out of the field, um, you know, to process them. And as a result of that, the cartels are literally having their mules and backpacks and sometimes trucks drive across the border uh, with, with drugs. And that's why we've seen, and some, one of the other speakers alluded to it, the dramatic increase in just fentanyl seizures. We know that there was more fentanyl seized um, through May of this year than there was 
through all of the previous year. And, and this is a dramatic you know, increase in a potential threat, a big threat to our communities because fentanyl is 50 to 100 times more potent than heroin. We know that about a kilo, a kilogram of fentanyl can kill half a million people. And so when we start talking about these numbers, 7,000, 8,000 pounds of fentanyl, we're talking about enough drugs to kill every single American. And part of the problem with the Chinese and the Mexican cartels working together to manufacture fentanyl is you know, that sometimes in some of the doses that are seized, you know, there's you know, two, three times the, the level that can kill a normal person. And so there's no sort of control and it literally is a crapshoot. And so it's something that, as we've heard from the other speakers, um, is affecting literally tens of thousands of American lives. And so I think it's so important for all of us as AG, as attorneys general, as law enforcement to do everything we can to push back against the cartels and what they were doing. So I wanna thank Heritage once again for giving me an opportunity to just highlight some of the work that we are doing here in Arizona. And I appreciate that we are having this conversation on such an important topic, because I would submit to you that a lot of times when we talk about issues related to the border, you know, we talk about the humanitarian crisis. We talk about folks in detention centers. We talk about folks that are dying, trying to come across the border. We talk about the, the migrants that have been exploited by the cartels. But let us not forget, there are real world practical implications for what the cartels are doing. Um, it, they are dramatically increasing the amount of drugs coming into our country. They are profiting from those drugs. They are poisoning our neighborhoods. And we have to do everything we can to stop it. And that's what I'm committed to doing. General, thank you very much. Let me now pose questions to our panel members. So please, Jim and Utam, please rejoin us. Let me ask the first question to General Brinovich. General, uh, Jim Carroll mentioned there are thousands and thousands of people and an increasing number who are dying from the uh, use of fentanyl-laced drugs or from fentanyl itself. What can any state do on its own to address the problems of fentanyl and to save lives? And how many lives can a state save in this regard? Well, Paul, as a parent, I will tell you that any life saved is a life worth saving. And we, we talk about these numbers, but just the numbers that were just released yesterday. So 93,000, more than 93,000 people have died from drug overdoses in 2020. This is a dramatic increase. It's a nearly 30% increase from the 72,000 deaths um, that were in 2019. So once again, to put that in context, that is more, that, that, those numbers, that is like every single person who died in the Korea War and Vietnam War combined. So we are talking about astronomical numbers in just one year. We are talking about a whole generation of Americans' lives that have been stuffed out. And so I think it's important that we recognize that. I also think that if you look at it from not only that human life, um, the consequences of that, but the economic impact and that impact that it has on our everyday lives. That we know that the CDC estimates that the burden on the Americans is nearly $80 billion a year. And that in, even includes increased healthcare costs. We know that there's been lost productivity. We know that uh, there are issues associated with having to make sure folks get uh, addiction treatment, mental health treatment. 
We know that it has an impact on the criminal justice system and how much we spend on criminal justice. So there is a terrible cost in human lives. As I said, more than 90,000 you know, folks dying, people dying just last year. We also know that there's this huge economic cost and that ends up um, having an impact on everyone here in the country as well. So in many ways, it's an immeasurable cost and one life is too many, but we do know that there is a dramatic personal and financial cost. We literally, we are literally paying for what China and Mexico is doing with the treasure, not only the treasure of our kids, but the treasure of our hardworking tax dollars. Okay, thank you, General. Uh, Jim, let me pose a question to you. Utam recommended three uh, proposals, increased funding for federal law enforcement, uh, consider designating Mexico as a foreign terrorist organization and consider designating fentanyl as a weapon of mass destruction. We already have on the books laws dealing with criminal racketeering and operating a continuing criminal drug enterprise. What is it uh, in UTOM's proposals that would enhance our current ability to use whatever we already have to address the problem of fentanyl smuggling. And, and to make it fair, Utam, I'll give you the chance to reply to anything that Jim says. The, uh, well, thank you for the question. The, it, obviously he's my business partner and also a friend, so I'm going to agree with what he said, but I think it really goes um, to the heart of the matter. In terms of the law enforcement, this is where I'll deviate a little bit, um, is not only do we need to fully fund our federal law enforcement, when you think about, um, what the really brave men and women of CBP and Border Patrol are doing um, along our um, nation's edges. Um, they're really doing remarkable work. But you also have to be able to fund our state and local law enforcement and make sure that they have the tools necessary, the intelligence necessary to be able to effectively combat these criminal organizations. And what we're talking about is being, if we were to do such a designation of a foreign terrorist organization. And it's not so much as the entire country of Mexico as it is these cartels. What we will be doing is supporting the law enforcement by marshalling the federal resources to go after them. So while the attorney general um, absolutely spoke about the critical problems that are going on in Arizona, because he's a border state, we really need to think about every country, is, excuse me, every state in the US is a border state. Dawn Mertz runs our um, drug task forces in Arizona, um, and she's a remarkable woman, um, and she understands the ability and need to fight the drug cartels in the true border state of Arizona. But when we have drug cartels operating in our cities, when we have Vic Brown and Mickey Hatmaker in Kentucky telling the country that the Mexican drug cartels are operating in Kentucky, we need to support them. These are tough men and women of law enforcement. These are men and women who have dedicated their lives to this, to fighting the criminal activity that occurs in these states and in these communities. By bringing together the force of the US government and designating these cartels as FTOs, what we're doing is increasing the penalties and also increasing the reach, increasing the jurisdiction, as Udom talked about, for people that we would otherwise have a hard time tying directly to the US. So by designating them as FTOs, we can double the penalties, we can reach more people, but most importantly, 
we can change the way they operate. We can change and make sure that they are actually beginning to get scared about operating in the manner to which they have become accustomed, certainly um, since the borders have been relaxed and they're bringing these drugs in. So by designating them as a foreign terrorist organization, we can increase the penalties, we can increase the fear, and we can also use the entire weight of the federal government to go after them. And obviously, when you, you look at fentanyl, everyone here has talked about it, it is causing mass death. And so for us to think about it in any other terms is wrong and it's too simplistic. We have to understand exactly what is happening. With 9-11 happening every 10 days or the equivalent of it, with that many Americans dying, what is the appropriate response? What is the appropriate way we should be handling fentanyl? And a WMD classification checks those boxes of appropriately marshalling together the resources of the entire federal government, meaning not only Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and, but also the Department of Defense to go after these cartels that are killing us. And so I agree with Udom. Um, I would just add our state and local law enforcement in there as well. Well, Udom, it sounds like you're not going to really object to anything that Jim just said. So let me put the next question to you. My understanding of the designation of a foreign terrorist organization uh, is that it's done by the Secretary of State. And that generally speaking, the laws seem to focus on whether or not someone is acting out of a political motivation, an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States or one of its states. Opponents of that designation might say the only thing the cartels are interested in is money. Their interest is economic, not political. And so the designation is inapplicable because legally you can't satisfy the current statutes. What would you say in, resp uh, in response to that argument that, uh, that others will make? First, I would say that the, the, the cartels are controlling vast portions of Mexico. Uh, so they are effectively, in some parts of Mexico, the, the only governing force there. Um, the argument that they are not uh, looking to overthrow the United States, I think misses the point. Uh, we would not, any terrorist, any group that was killing the number of Americans that these people are killing every day, and let's, let's not kid ourselves. Every member of every cartel, everybody who brings drugs into the United States, they are murdering U.S. citizens at an alarming rate. Um, that's, in my view, that's terrorism. But I want to actually jump to something else. I want to make another point. Right now, our cooperation with Mexico, or Mexico's cooperation with us uh, from a law enforcement perspective, is at really an all-time low. We need to send a message to Mexico. We need to send a message to the cartels. We need to send a message to the entire world that we are not going to accept this anymore. Mexico is in a situation where it can, it has the ability and the resources to effectively attack these drug trafficking organizations that are poisoning our citizens. And if they're not going to do it, we're going to treat them and Mexico like the, uh, like the terrorist organizations, these, these drug trafficking organizations, like the terrorist organizations that they are, and let Mexico know that we are not going to stand still while you harbor terrorist organizations. I think it's an important message that needs to be sent. I'm not a diplomat. I often would say I'm not a diplomat, and diplomats might say that this is not a message that can be sent. But I can tell you right now, we're in a position where uh, our relationship 
a law enforcement relationship is so bad that something has to be done. Uh, and I think these most recent overdose numbers demonstrate that. Can I, may I add something um, to, the, to what Udom just said, Paul? Um, I, I read an article that talked about um, the FTO designation and designating these cartels, and it made two arguments against it. Um, the first was to your point of, they're not trying to remove the government, um, they're just trying to line their pockets. I fundamentally disagree with that. What we've already seen in Mexico is the killing of lawmakers, the killing of these town mayors, along those lines. They are absolutely trying to change the government of Mexico to allow for the corruption, to allow for the transportation of drugs. They're killing not only the mayors, they're killing judges. They're trying to kill the legal system there that is going after them. They're killing the journalists. Journalists in Mexico have a very high murder rate because they're writing stories telling about it. And I also understand it's the most dangerous place in the world to be a priest because on Sundays, the priest is telling them don't engage in this behavior. So they're killing the priest. It is the most dangerous place to operate. They're absolutely trying to fundamentally change the government of Mexico. And they are what makes us think so arrogant that they won't be trying to do the same thing here. We absolutely need to recognize that is what they are trying to do. The second argument was, oh, it might poison our relationship with Mexico. I'll give the author of the article the benefit of the doubt. He wrote the article a year ago. And as Udom said, the you know, relationship we had with Mexico was better back then. But right now, we could not have really uh, what I would imagine scare to be a, a worse relationship with Mexico. And really, the people of Mexico, look, there are some good people in law enforcement in Mexico. There are some good people in the military of Mexico that want to do the right thing. And I truly believe that were we to designate um, some of these organizations as an FTO and treat them accordingly, that they would welcome it. They can't get the support from the senior leadership in Mexico right now, and we should give it to them in an effort not only to aid them, but the bottom line is to aid American citizens here. Let me put the, the next question to everyone. Are there any good demand side solutions to this problem? And, and what types of education, prevention, and treatment work best? And that's a uh, toss-up for all three of you. I can, I can certainly um, go first. I'm, I'm sure the general has good thoughts about what's working in Arizona. The first is, and this is something that we fundamentally um, believed in when I was running the National Drug Control Policy Office, is that prevention works, prevention matters. And it makes sense not only from a, a human policy, but from a fiscal policy as well, that for every dollar that we spend on prevention, it's about a $15, if not more, return on investment because you're not having to put that person through drug treatment and put them through the system. So absolutely, we know that prevention works. And we know that it works through an organization like SAD, like I mentioned, Students Against Destructive Decisions, because they have the national expertise, but they're letting the individual communities tailor it and make sure that they understand um, you know, what the needs are. Arizona is a great state. I've been there many times. And what's going to work in the, you know, the most northern part of Arizona will be different than what works on the southern part. The kids are, you know, have different um, areas where they're growing up, different school systems. And so tailoring it to the individual kids, to the youth at an appropriate age, which for the most part, meaning, you know, elementary school for the basic stuff and moving more and more up really is important. 
the other important factor is of demand is treatment um, and making sure that when people are ready for treatment that they have access to it and they get meaningful science-based, evidence-based help that is going to get them into long-term recovery. In the administration, um, we spent, as I said, about $35 billion with it almost being completely dead even split um, between demand and supply. We need to keep going. We need to keep pushing to make sure that we're doing our part to reduce the demand, but we cannot ignore the supply side. We cannot ignore our borders um, in Arizona and the rest of the country. And I would just um, add, I would just add that uh, I alluded to the fact that we have a, a community outreach program, which is, is important. And we provide in-person trainings throughout the state but also those trainings are available online at azag.gov. So we do, we've had virtual meetings and you know, electronic training, Zoom, and also in person. And so anything we can do. The other thing is that uh, we've done, we've worked very closely with rural law enforcement here in Arizona with uh, naloxone and making sure that the, the drugs, the, 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 uh, what we can do to counteract opioid and overdose, uh, overdose deaths. We're making sure local law enforcement, even some religious institutions have that. So that way, God forbid, if someone is overdosing, that they can get the immediately help they need and hopefully save lives. And so I think that's also an important step. Uh, but ultimately, you know, there, there's an old cliche saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think that anything that we can do on the front end um, obviously will help us um, address the problem. But part of that prevention is not only education, it's not only making sure treatment's available, there's not stigmas attached with treatment, but it's also just what everyone um, at this meeting is talking about. We have to use every tool in our toolbox to target the cartels and to make sure we're doing everything we can to stop fentanyl and other synth synthetic opioids and heroin coming across our Southern border. And that starts with trying to uh, make sure the cartels do not have all this power and that starts with securing our border. Utan, let me put a question to you as the former DEA administrator. We've had a problem with heroin in the United States for more than a century. What if anything that we have learned in addressing the problem of heroin can we use now to address the problem of fentanyl? I have to tell you, I think the, the issues we had with heroin versus fentanyl are, are just night and day. Um, the ability of drug trafficking organizations to manufacture fentanyl uh, at an industrial scale, the way they have been manufacturing methamphetamine for a number of years, uh, clearly exists. Uh, and that outstrips the ability to grow uh, the, uh, the opium poppy and that sort of thing and to harvest heroin and, and export it or import it into the U.S. So I don't think that I think that we're talking about two very different um, criminal enterprises. And I think what we're going to see, and we're actually already seeing this, is a move away from these natural drugs, uh, things that have to be grown and processed, to these synthetic drugs. Uh, because of the ease of, of manufacture, the cost effectiveness, the ease of transporting them into the U.S. So uh, the, the answer is we need uh, more effective law enforcement. We need to support law enforcement. We need to recognize that supply matters. One of the things we should have learned through, as a result of the beginning of the opioid crisis is that if you flood an area with drugs, people, more people become addicted. That proves that supply matters, which means law enforcement's primary goal 
is to, uh, is to reduce supply. So support law enforcement through uh, the resources it needs to fight these drug trafficking organizations. Uh, it will then, law enforcement will then reduce supply and save lives. Let me throw this next question up to anyone. Uh, we haven't talked about China. What incentive, if any, does China have to cooperate with us to stop the inflow of fentanyl into the United States? And what can this administration do to give them an incentive to help us stop the smuggling of fentanyl? I'll just say that China is supplying either fentanyl or um, uh, the precursors for making fentanyl to the Mexican drug cartels. Um, and so what we need to do is we need to continue to pressure China not to do that. I, I think at this point, um, the cartels are also looking at ways to be independent of China. And this is a great danger to us because the cartels are looking for opportunities to develop their own precursor chemicals to manufacture fentanyl without being dependent on China. It's also important to note that China is not only doing this, but India is also uh, providing um, these precursor chemicals uh, uh, to Mexico. So it's not just a China problem, but at this point, what we need to do is put enormous diplomatic pressure on China to control the outflow of both fentanyl and fentanyl precursors uh, to countries like Mexico. We know that it works. Um, we know that some of the pressure that you put around China um, does have an impact. In December of 2018, President Trump got a commitment from President Xi of China to stop sending fentanyl directly from China to the U.S. Most of it was coming you know, through the mail and through private parcel. And that has essentially dropped to zero because of the pressure um, that was put on China. But now what we're seeing is a shift, um, as Ludum said, and so the fact that we have a better relationship with China in some ways, or more cooperation um, with China than Mexico is, is rather terrifying. The Chinese can do this if they want to. I think Jim and I both believe that if the Chinese wanted to severely restrict the amount of fentanyl and fentanyl precursors going into Mexico, they could do it. And the, what, what it's going to require is diplomatic pressure to force them to do that. Gang, for more than 200 years, piracy has been a crime under international law. Would trying to designate the smuggling of illicit fentanyl into the United States as a form of piracy, a form of conduct that is outlawed by humanity, would that help in any way? Would it help us gain support in the international community? Would it give us any weapons under the criminal law? Or to give us any weapons under the civil law that we can use either against the Mexican DTOs or against the Mexican government. We got me to answer the pirate. Yeah, look at that. You're the pirate expert here. I'll, I'll, <laughs> he doesn't I'm know that, but he's I, the pirate expert. I don't know the, the legal answer to that question of whether you know you could you know you could declare them pirates or that it's piracy i will say this as i as i said with respect to um to designating um drug trafficking organizations as as terrorist foreign terrorist organizations anything we can do to raise the attention of the world anything we can do to point a finger at the countries that are harboring drug trafficking organizations mexico isn't the only one but they're the closest one to us and they're the ones that that's where most of the drugs come from that are killing americans Anything we can do, I think, is worth doing uh, at this point. 
we don't have the cooperation we need globally to attack these uh, drug trafficking organizations. So if declaring them pirates will work, I'm all for it. As long as we give our military more than muskets and cannonballs to go after them. Well, listen, let me thank each of you, Jim Carroll, Utam Dillon, um, General Mark Brinovich. I appreciate you taking the time out to educate everyone who has listened. And let me just end with this. It's a question I pose to the president. President Biden, how many more people have to die from the smuggling of fentanyl into the United States and the impermissible distribution of illicit fentanyl throughout our communities before you will do something about it? With that, let me bring this to a close and thank all of our speakers. We're adjourned. <laughs>